This morning we come to Genesis chapter 38 and our title this morning is The Chosen Line. The Chosen Line. Just when we're all ready to settle down into the amazing life of Joseph, a chapter like this hits us. We have already been hit before with stories like this, so you, in the twists and turns of Genesis, you half expected. So yes, at one level we could well do without it in order to just follow the story of the hero of the hour, that is Joseph. And suddenly this breaks from left field. It appears in the, nar- in the, in the narrative of Joseph's life to, to tell the world, to bring us this very sad tale of the life of Judah. Let's be honest. The story is so sad, so messy, so graphic in its sinfulness that we can't, you know, we don't do this stuff in Sunday school and all of that. It just seems out of place. So ugly that it, it, it's difficult to explain it to, uh, to our kids. So why is it here? Why is it here? Let me give you four reasons. From a literary point of view, I know that some of you love novels and, and stories and all of this and you're a bookworms and all of this. But, so this passage heightens the tension of the reader of the Joseph narrative, the Joseph story. It's, it's, a, it's a technique that authors use and even in, in films sometimes you use it. You Meanwhile, back at the ranch type of thing. So you cut away. We've, we've left Joseph, in the last chapter, we've left Joseph in the hands of, of slave drivers who are going to take him to Potiphar, an Egyptian official, high-ranking official, where Joseph was going to be a slave. In good time, the drama will continue. We'll pick it up. And suddenly we, we, we cut back to the, the troubled life of his brother, his elder brother, Judah, back home. It's a, it's a brilliant literary device and, and many literary critics have actually said how, how everything just fits together so, so well. It is it's brilliantly written by the Holy Spirit, obviously. And he heightens attention and gr- growing expectation concerning the plight of Joseph in Egypt. We'll get to that. The second reason, I believe it's here, is by way of contrast. By way of contrast. This story provides a dark backdrop against which we can measure the character of Joseph. We already know that there is something special about him, don't we? 
in the following chapters, we're going to see just how special he is. And how he, you can only measure how good somebody is in the context in which, in the situations in which they place and how they react to them. It's very easy being good in a good environment. How hard it is to be good in a bad environment. We're going to get to that. And, and Joseph does, with all the tests and all the struggles that he faces, he comes out shining like a rose with impeccable integrity. So the contrast is here between these two brothers from the same family. The contrast couldn't be greater. Judah, in the promised land of Canaan, descends into this spiral of unbelief and immorality, whereas Joseph, in a dark kingdom of Egypt, in paganism and idolatry and everything else, maintains his purity and holiness and everything else. We fall in love with Joseph all the more. God was with him. This is a phrase that's going to come again and again in the chapters to come. God was with him. It's related to the phrase, the name Emmanuel, God with us, isn't it? Not far. Again and again, the fact is underlined with this statement that runs through the narrative. We, we obviously want God to be with us all the time. But here, it just doesn't appear that God is with Judah. It's, for us, it doesn't appear that God is with Judah. That man defied God in every choice he made. They were bad choices. Meanwhile, Joseph is in Potiphar's house trying to avoid a trap that was set him and God was with him. And lastly, this is the chosen line. This is the chosen line. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. We could start a show with that name. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. No. Because of the implications, which I'm going to describe, it actually is. Our Lord actually descended from this man, Judah. He was born with the blood of this man in his veins. Judah's name appears in the most important genealogical record in the history of mankind. And his name appears in Matthew and, and Luke. So Moses and the Holy Spirit have a, a very special agenda here, inserting this story right here. It's not by accident. So, let's get into it. Verses 1 to 12 the crisis in the line. Remember, our title is The Chosen Line. Now, first, we will deal with the crisis in the line. 
verses 1 to 12. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. Moses tells us that Judah left his brothers and went down from them. And it appears in the rest of the story he continues to go down and down. Judah just very easily wandered away from his family. He wanders away from God in search for a wife. And as you look at these verses, there is a similarity here with, with Esau, his uncle Esau, and the way that he searched for a wife. And the big problem, as we saw with Esau, is that Judah goes out to find a woman from amongst the Canaanites. While we don't know her name, he marries the daughter of a man named Shua, who bears her who bears Judah three sons, Ur, Onan and Shelah. The boys obviously grow up quickly, so we cut away for some 20 years later or or so. So Judah arranges a marriage for Ur with a Canaanite woman, Tamar, verse 6. Judah, Judah's example of marrying a Canaanite, that example is now passed on to the son who also marries a Canaanite, the faithlessness passes on to the next generation. And we are immediately told that Ur was wicked, so wicked, so evil in the sight of God that God takes his life. Full stop, just like that. No explanation. Bang. God took his life. Verse 7. So Judah tells Onan, his brother, to raise up heirs to his brother. Now this was practiced amongst the civilization of the time with the Hittites and others. It was known as the deliverite marriage. Just in case you doubt, it was actually confirmed within the law of Moses as well as something that, that was allowed. Now the idea was this, that if a man died with his wife specifically not yet having born him a son who would be his heir, then his brother had a responsibility to enable the widow to bear a male child who could be the heir to his line so that the line, the descendants, the name would go on. Onan doesn't think this is a great idea. Yes, he marries Tamar. He has, he does the the normal deeds, but he doesn't fulfil what he's supposed to do. He is, in fact, what he's doing is taking advantage of a situation and despising the promise of God. So God took his life also. That's two brothers wiped out. God just killed them. Is that fair? Well, it's God we're talking about. 
Don't muck around with God. At this point, Dad, Judah, only had one son left. And he wasn't old enough to marry at this stage. So Judah put off Tamar, the widow of his two sons, double widow now, could even call her a black widow, saying, this is Judah, goes to Tamar and says, live as a widow in your father's house, go back to dad until my son Sheila grows up. But actually Judah had no intention, the Bible says, he had no intention of giving Sheila to her. He may die too, just like his brothers, in verse 11. So he thought. Judah was scared. But maybe there was bad luck attached to Tamar. You know, that maybe she's sick or something. Maybe, they, I don't know what's going on. No, it wasn't bad luck. It was a severe judgment of God in time and in human history. God has done this before and God is ready to do this whenever he wants. Do not muck around with God. To complicate things even more, Judah's wife also dies. So, he could not, Judah could not produce another seed himself with all that he had in place. So is this it? Nobody having any more children? How will Jesus be born? And this is, that is the story, this is what the story is telling us about. Verses 13 to 25, a crooked line. Verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was her, in fact, daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, Let me sleep with you. There is no moral ambiguity here, no grey area. Moses is painting the picture in black and white. Moses is telling us that Judah is up to no good. He is going to Timnah. It's sheep shearing time. In that culture, that was about the sheep shearing time, all of that time, the harvest time, and all that, that were all what you would call today the, the spiritual equivalent of the Mardi Gras. These were the Canaanites. And the Canaanites follow a fertility cult for them to perform all sorts of stuff, like orgies and everything else, they actually did it as an act of worship to their particular gods. They would normally 
have dedicated temple prostitutes everywhere as a service or priestesses offering that as a service to their gods. Do you think we're removed from those days? How different is it to what we're we're seeing now? A resurgence of paganism everywhere you look, isn't there? How else would you describe it? Yes, you try and explain it away and all of these other different ways, but for goodness sake, I mean, it's, it's black and white in here in the Bible. So Tamar has been dudded by these men in her life. Well, the first two died really, and including her father-in-law. And we know in that day and age, you know, there's, it's already, uh, there's no way to sustain yourself and everything else. She's depending on her dad and everything else. There's no way for her to move on in her life. So she decides to take matters into her own hands, to put things right. So she puts on the costume of a pagan temple prostitute covering her face. You looked at her and, you know, she looked just the same way as a local Canaanite fertility cult prostitute. It's the same thing. That's exactly what Judah thought. It looks like Judah just wasn't going there to shear his sheep, was he? There was more to it than that. So on his way to shearing the sheep, he saw her and he bought half an hour with her for the promise of a young goat. The idea was to trick Judah from Tamar's perspective, was to trick Judah, her father-in-law, into having a child with her without him knowing. Now, Let's give it to Tamar. She is a smart operator. Long before we started using DNA to prove who the father of the child was, she got a pledge from Judah. In effect, this was a a pawn, which was the equivalent of his form of ID. It included the seal, it called, the staff in hand. Because in the moment, you know, he's just, yeah, whatever. Let's just get it done. You know, that type of thing. The deed was done and everyone went home. In a short time, he sent his friend with the, he left his stuff there, remember? Then he sent his friend to get the goat to pay for the prostitute, clear his conscience and pick up his personal possessions. But she was nowhere to be found. And indeed the locals just basically said, well, we don't know any particular person by that description. In this particular place we don't normally get prostitutes. It's interesting. I don't know if you picked this up or not, but uh, it's interesting that once again the sons of Abraham are involved in deception involving, involving a goat. The mystery of the goat. I like goats. Goat meat is pretty good. 
but uh, they have been used in deceiving people, apparently. Jacob deceived his father Isaac with a goat. The sons of Jacob, uh, led by Judah, they killed a goat and smeared the technicolour drink coat with the goat's blood and showed it to Dad. And here is another case of the sins of the fathers visiting upon the sons. Crooked dad breeds crooked sons. Just continues, doesn't it? Let me pause for a moment here. This is not just a situation that the children of Israel constantly found themselves in. It is also a picture of our own sinful situation in in Adam, is it not? How how do you get out of this cycle of never-ending sin and destruction and deception and death and, and all of that. How do you, who's going who's gonna, to, how's this going to be broken? There's a, there's a desperate need for a solution to this. Because even God's chosen people, you know, seem to be involved in the messiah. Now, you may think that if God is at work and this is indeed part of God's chosen line that, that everything is going to be great. Everything is going to be hunky-dory. It's going to be fantastic. What a great family they are. And yet, despite the mess, God is at work in this family. It's an absolute mess and yet God is at work. Can you see the, the problem here? Can you see it? Don't think that just because the Holy Spirit is working in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of the church, that everything is going to be fine. We may long, our hearts may long and cry out for everything to be fine here at Liverpool Baptist. But even when the Holy Spirit is working, it does not mean that everything is going to be fine. It doesn't. It just doesn't mean like that. Forget all this rubbish about, you know, the, the blessing and if it is that, it does mean that God's not with you. No! God is at work. Three months later, Tamar knew she was pregnant. You see this and wonder how can the holiest of seeds, the holiest of seeds, be conceived in this ungodly way. Yes, in spite of all the wickedness in Judah, in spite of the wickedness of his sons, in spite of the deception and immorality of his daughter-in-law, the Holy Spirit 
was working. How does that work? Please tell me. I'm lost here and you explain it to normal human beings who haven't been enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a verse for you. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Man's sin, God's grace. Who's going to win? God did not deal with Judah or Tamar as their sins deserved. Remember the two boys who just got killed? Well, don't you think Judah and Tamar should have been wiped out the same way? Rather, there was a gift of God, a baby in Tamar's womb. The godly line was preserved, but now we can see that the so-called godly line is, is, is still not godly at all, but it will end in, 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 in the glorious one, the, the godly line. Our Lord Jesus Christ will come through this. It looks crooked, doesn't it? But God straightens things out. And then the news gets out that uh, this widow... Tamar was expecting a baby out of wedlock because she'd been playing the harlot. And Judah, the father-in-law, the old hypocrite, suddenly he's, he's hit with righteousness, this legalism that just hits him and says, bring her out and let her be burned to death. Oh yes, the righteous Judah. That's what we need. Burn her to death. And whatever's in her womb. Didn't know it was his own son. This was the daughter-in-law he was talking about. When it suited him, he could magnify the law. Just, do you ever ponder what God has to put up with? On the one hand, we are, we're, we're, we're sinning like it's like it's Christmas, well, in a pagan way, not the godly Christmas, but the, you know, like it's never-ending sin, and, and, and suddenly, you know, we swing to the other side and it's full of legalism. No, that's going to be no. I say, God says, what am I going to do with these people? They don't get it. And God has to put up with this. And through this, the line continues, verses 26 to 30. I'm going to bring it home now. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. And since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again, that's what Judah didn't do that anymore. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys her womb. You see, Tamar produced the ID. Here's your driver's license. Here's your credit card. Is this you? I am pregnant by the man who owns these. 
Judah is shamed at the sight of his seal and his staff. His sins came back to haunt him. And Judah admitted that Tamar is indeed justified in taking matters into her own hand. He also admitted that his conduct had been less than righteous when compared to hers. And then comes the moment some months later when Tamar has twins in her womb and she's in labour. It's no surprise that there's another set of twins here, Perez and Zira. Twins seem to run in the family. And it is indeed Perez that Jesus, from whom Jesus will be descended. I've got to be honest with you. I, in my 53 years of life, in my own personal feeling, the way I feel, I don't have much hope in people. I have been deceived. I have been lied to, mistrusted and told porkies. And I don't, from my own perspective, people can't change very much. They don't change very much. And yet, surprise, surprise, under the power of God, people do change. People can change. Miraculously. You know, as Gamer Pyle used to say, surprise, surprise, surprise. No, and it does actually happen. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it, that's what breaks the cycle of sin and people change. And I say, man, I told you the story of my own grandfather. From debauchery and, and drunkenness and everything else, it's, it's in his drunken state, he's given his life to God in a park in, in LA and you know, and his life is converted transformed for, forever. It, it's just amazing. How does it happen? I don't know. It's God. In fact even Judah even Judah is, is slowly changing. In fact, Judah matures as the years pass and, and will eventually, in another circumstances, in another place, a few chapters down the road, uh, he offers his life in order to save his little brother, Benjamin, in the Egyptian palace. Suddenly he grows up. Let's also be honest here. All of us wished in a heart of hearts, if you're honest, and this is, this is something that hits me, in a heart of hearts, don't you and I wish that the chosen line had come through Joseph? Don't you? He is a good man. He is a holy man. God was with him. Please, Lord, let the Messiah come through Joseph. He deserves it. Look at everything he had to put up with. Look at this, this, this beautiful human being in the context of so much depravity, his family, Egypt and everything else. Please let it be through Joseph. And how devastating to me as I read these stories and I say, why Lord, come on. 
It's not through Joseph. Because that's, that's how we expect it from a human point of view. We expect things to work out this way. Good things happen to good people. But sometimes good things happen to bad people. Transformed under the power of God does something, God does something incredible. God, God thinks differently, very differently to us because his son would come through the line of this immoral human being called Judah. So let's go back to where we started. Remember that first bit, how we started this, the message this morning? It isn't, in fact, the case that this chapter interrupts the story of Joseph. It is actually the other way around. No. Yes. The story of Joseph interrupts the story of Judah. You see, the the singular purpose of God is to keep Judah alive. That is why Joseph ended up in Egypt, you see. No. Yes. That is why all these dastardly things happened to poor innocent little Joseph by his brother, by Potiphar's wife and all of this. Who comes up with a plot like this? You think God might have something to do with this? No. Yes. Everybody's sinning in this story and yet God is working the whole time. Did God like the sin? No. Was God still in control? Yes. Did God use all these revolting deeds to do what he wanted to be done? Yes. It should leave you and me with our mouths open and in awe and wonder of the magnificence of the God who works in the way, in this way. And by the means, by every possible means to achieve his own sovereign purpose so that at at last Christ will have the preeminence in everything, above all things. The seed of the woman is to be the son of Judah. He is to be descended from this cruel adulterer that how can Jesus have any hope through this family and yet he does because of who he is. Tamar, you see, you, you read the genealogies and, and Tamar is the first of four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus which is the the genealogy of the line that you want to be included in. In in Matthew chapter 1, there is Tamar, the Canaanite, there is Rahab, the Canaanite, there is Ruth, the Moabite, there is Bathsheba, we know about her, the Hittite. They are here and yet there is no mention of the great mothers that should have been there. There is no mention of Sarah, Rebecca and Leah, and Rachel, hang on, Moses, why isn't my name in it? Come on, you can do better than that. Did we protest, right? 
Matthew, what have you done? Come on. Because even then, even then, there is a chosen line and then there is the, the branches and these are the branches. The Gentile nations will be included in God's marvellous redemption plan and that's you and me and that is why we are here. Engrafted, engrafted in the marvellous tree of God's salvation. It's a blessing that Genesis does not end with chapter 38. I'm glad that Moses continued the story. But the story goes on as God sets the stage for the coming of who? The Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. Our Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Ever. Amen.